Today's scripture portion for the expositional sermon is taken from the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, from verse 1 to 14. I repeat, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 14. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all the ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? May God honor his word through the expositional preaching. Thank you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity you have given to us to listen to your word. And we pray this morning and we invite the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Take away the distraction of mind and also the dullness of mind. And we pray that you give us that spiritual sharpness to listen carefully and to understand your word. And may we be diligent in the way that we listen so that we can enjoy the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Pray that, Lord, you're pleased to open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. And we thank you for this book of Hebrews, which is a great spiritual enrichment to your people. We commit ourselves to the enlightening, life-transforming, Christ-glorifying work of the Holy Spirit. In the name of our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ, we offer this prayer. Amen. Amen. This may be the last uh, sermon of the first chapter. And I have shared with you the first sermon from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. And I spoke to you about the God who speaks. And then I have given two sermons from Chapter 1 from verses 2 to 3, explaining to you the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And today, 
from verse 4 to 14, I will be speaking to you and helping you understand the supremacy of Christ over angels. The supremacy of Christ over angels. I read an article recently and the title of the article is, Who is Michael the Archangel? Who is Michael the Archangel? And to that article, that question, the answer is this. The spirit creature called Michael is not mentioned often in the Bible. However, when he is referred to, he is in action. In the book of Daniel, Michael is battling wicked angels. In the letter of Jude, he is disputing with Satan. And in Revelation, he is waging war with the devil and his demons. By defending Jehovah's rulership and fighting God's enemies, Michael lives up to the meaning of his name. Who is like God? But who is Michael? At times, individuals are known by more than one name. For example, the patriarch Jacob is also known as Israel. And the apostle Peter as Simon. Likewise, the Bible indicates that Michael is another name for Jesus. Christ before and after his life on earth. And this article is by a Christian cult, Jehovah's Witnesses. And I wonder how many Christians would be able to refute this claim and prove that Jesus is supreme over angels and archangels. And I think similar to the situation that we face today, the first century Jewish converts also faced. And after mentioning in Hebrews chapter 1, Verses 1 to 3, long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in this last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here we see that the author of Hebrews convincing that Christ is supreme over the prophets through whom the ultimate, absolute, final revelation of God came to his people. And then here he speaks about how Christ is supreme over angels. You know, this is very important for you to consider. What you think about Christ is crucial to your salvation and sanctification. Do you get what I said? What you think about Christ is crucial, significant, absolutely essential to your salvation and sanctification. And Christology, which means the doctrine of Christ, is one of the most complex doctrines in the Bible. It is on the person Christ that many are divided, that some are called heretics and false teachers. Making their point on who Christ is. When some people say that Christ is God but not human. That's a Christian cult. And when some people say that Christ is human but not God. That's also a Christian cult. Because Christ is fully God and fully man at the same time. And then after mentioning about the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in right now comes to the angels. And the key phrase that you need to understand 
from verse 4 to 14 is the phrase which is in a rhetorical question. Rhetorical question is a question which has an answer in the question itself. And the rhetorical question is, for to which of the angels did God ever say? To which of the angels did God ever say? And what is the answer? To none. Never he said these words to any other person. You know, I told you the context here that uh, the, the Jews who heard the gospel were converted to Christianity and they became the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of their faith in Christ, they were facing two vehement opposition. One is from Nero, the emperor, who was persecuting Christians because he saw Christ as a competitor to him. He is a new emperor. How is it that you people are turning from my devotion to this person called Jesus Christ? And his one aim was to eradicate Christianity. And because of that, a lot of people were facing persecution. And the Jewish converts here not only faced opposition and persecution from Nero's empire, but they also faced an opposition from another group, which are the Jews who denied the Lord Jesus Christ. They were ostracized. They were removed from the community. They were rejected, humiliated, despised because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And these people were tempted to please Nero, to please even this Jewish uh, community so that they can gain favor and not face this ostracism, rejection, despise, so that they would be physically comfortable. So one of the easiest things for them to do is to believe that Jesus is inferior than God and to believe that he is just a mere angel. That would save them from suffering and persecution and all the hellish assaults that they were facing. And then here the author of Hebrews was showing two things. You know what is that? That Christ is supreme. He is no ordinary man. He is God. And also at the same time he was man. And at the same time he was also proving and encouraging these people that since Christ is supreme... It is worth suffering for him. Since Christ is supreme, it is worth suffering for him. Now hear this people which is very important. Many of us think about how can I endure suffering? How can I, how can I have victory over suffering? How can I persevere in afflictions? How can I be strong? Now listen to this. The more you know about the greatness of the Lord, the more you learn to persevere in your suffering. The problem with the weakening of the faith in suffering is lack of understanding the majesty, greatness, supremacy of who God is. Knowledge of Christ, exposure to the majesty of the maker of the heavens and the earth will encourage us to persevere in our suffering and to conquer temptations. And now you see what the author says here in verse 4. Having become, it is speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The name that Christ has gotten is greater than the name of the angels. 
So the first thing that we need to understand here is that Christ is supreme over angels in name. And what is the name that he has inherited? It is said that name is very crucial to the Jewish community. These days people name their children Dick and Harry in a very simple way. And when you ask them what is the meaning of it, people don't know the meaning. How many of you know the meaning of your name? Very few people, right? Many people don't know the meaning of the name. You know what is the meaning of my name? Corona. I am Corona in flesh. <laughs> Stephen is, the Greek name is Stephanon, which is the name for the crown. And Corona is taken from the word crown. So my name you can call Corona David. <laughs> so that's the meaning. The Jewish names have meanings. And when it says the name, it speaks about the person himself. It speaks about the character of a person and also the work of the person. Now in order to prove that how Christ is supreme, the author of Hebrews cites and quotes seven Old Testament passages. Five are from the book of Psalms. One is from 2 Samuel and the other is from Deuteronomy. Seven passages he quotes in order to prove that Christ is supreme. Now listen carefully people. Don't be dull in your mind. Don't struggle, you know, to understand this. If you want to understand the Old Testament, one of the most important disciplines is to know what messianic psalms and prophecies are. Messianic psalms and prophecies. And messianic prophecies in the Old Testament deal with some aspects of messianic nature, work, and ministry. There are some passages in the Old Testament. If you don't know... That doesn't mean anything to you when you read the Old Testament. So we need to understand that the prophecies, when it speaks about Messiah, it is pointing to the work and person and the ministry of the future Messiah. And here is an other important thing. Many times when you read the Messianic prophecies or even the Psalms, it has dual application. What do I mean by dual application? Double application. It was referring, pointing to the people and the audience at that time when it was written. At the same time, it was pointing to the future Messiah. It has dual application. For example, we see that in Psalm 22 where David was calling out to Yahweh and the Psalm 22 begins saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is it familiar phrase? Where do you hear this? When the Lord Jesus was on the cross, was crying out, My God, my God, Eloi, Eloi, Lama, Sabachthani, why did you forsake me? So when the psalmist David wrote this Psalm 22, he was applying to his situation. I am going through anguish and pain. Lord, Lord, why have you forsaken me? And at the same time, this psalm was pointing to the future messianic suffering on the cross. And you know what is an interesting thing? Sometimes the authors who wrote these psalms did not even know the long-range understanding of the messianic fulfillment. And the Holy Spirit used the New Testament authors to open their eyes, the first century recipients to understand that this is actually not pointing to people then and there, which is right. But it also points to the future Messiah. And then he proves how the name of Jesus is superior to the name of angels. He gives and cites two passages from the Old Testament. Now you see in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5. It says here that. 
For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, to which of the angels did God ever say, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. He uses the name son twice here. And also at the same time, he alludes to the name of angels, which are inferior to the superior name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the Greek word here, angel, is anglos. And the Hebrew word for angel is malak, which means they are the ambassadors. They are the messengers. They are the servants. And he was proving that how Christ is superior to these ambassadors, to these messengers, and to these servants. And there are some things we need to understand. The beauty about expositional sermon is that you will be able to get into some very important aspects of the systematic theology of the doctrines of the Bible, which we ignore if we get into topical sermons. Now here I'm forced to teach you something about angelology, which is the doctrine of angels. What we need to understand here, when the Bible is speaking about angels here, we see that angels, malak, anglos, were created by God. But interestingly, when you look at Genesis chapter 1 and 2, do you see there any mention of angels? In Genesis chapter 1, chapter 1 and 2? No, there is nothing mentioned about that. And many Bible scholars believe that the angels were created before the world was created. And that's where actually the devil fell and uh, the temptation they faced after the creation. And uh, thanks to Kiran for bringing that scripture, Psalm 148, which I was not uh, able to cite from my memory. It says here that praise him all his angels, praise him all his hosts. And in verse 5 it says, let them praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created. So we see that angels were created by God, perhaps before the foundation of the world. And also we see that angels, the name of angels was mentioned over 100 times in the Old Testament and over 160 times in the New Testament. And much more interestingly, we see that angels are sometimes called sons of God in plural title in the Old Testament. Anyone tell, where is it? Noah's is controversial. People are divided. Job. Job chapter 1 verse 5, he says that the devil presented himself before the Lord along with the sons of God. So angels are sometimes called the sons of God in masculine terms. Now here I will tell you the power of tradition here. Just a little thought over here. How many of you can name your son's name as angel? How many of you can name? You don't name your son's name angel, right? To whom will you name? This is what... The culture and the media has done. <laughs> really. Angel was never used for a female. In the Bible, angels were always presented in masculine terms. The pronoun was he. Him. Never she. And also at the same time, they were called sons of God. Never the daughters of God. Not that women are demeaning. Not, that's not what I'm saying. Please don't misunderstand but what I'm telling you is, what the Bible says, you see what the culture and media has done. Debunked and, you know, destroyed this biblical understanding. And today, if you keep your son's name angel, what do people think? You, are, you even feel embarrassed, right? 
Come on, guys. Name your son angel. Get back the biblical understanding. It's also okay to keep for uh, daughters also. Not a problem. But I'm just telling you what a sad thing it is that the power of tradition and culture, it even makes Christians uncomfortable to follow biblical understanding. And we see here that angels are called the sons of God. But listen, listen here. Pay attention. Very important. Although very rarely that angels are called in plural plural terms sons of God, no angel singularly was ever called the son of God. Not even Archangel Michael or Gabriel. Only Jesus is called the son of God. And what does it speak about? It speaks about the uniqueness of Christ. That is the exact imprint of the father's nature and the exact radiance of his glory. And also we see that the son of God and the father, that relationship is very unique. It is not similar to any other relationship. This is a very unique relationship that the father and the son shared. That's the reason Jesus never called our father. In fact, when Jesus rose from the dead and when the woman came to touch him, he said that, do not touch me for I have not gone to my God, your God, my father, your father. Why didn't Jesus say that? Just say that, our father. Because the relationship that he had with the father is very unique, incomparable to the human beings. Why? Because he shared in the attributes and the nature of God, which we people don't share. And you know, then the author here points out in in the a part in five he says that for to which of the angels did god ever say you are my son today i have begotten you and from where did he quote this scripture hebrews 1 5 he quoted from psalm chapter 2 psalm chapter 2 is known as a messianic psalm and in verse 7 exactly he will say where hundreds of years before The psalmist said here, you are my son, today I have begotten you, which is a messianic promise. But as I go ahead, I want to clarify here verse 8. You know what does verse 8 say then? I have seen that in many Christian homes. Many Christian homes I have seen that. You know what does it say? Verse 8 it says, ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage. The ends of the earth your... And I see the calendar. And the quotation there. Ask of me and I will give you the nation. Hundreds, thousand square feet is difficult actually. And these guys said nations. And the prosperity people bang on this. You know, the Bible says ask. You are not having a case of land because... You're not asking. What does the Bible say? Ask and you will. What a great connection. Seek and you will. Find. Knock and the landlords will be open to you to give you showers of land. Shame on those guys. And what gullible people they are. I get very angry when scripture is distorted. This is not speaking about a promise given to believers. This is a promise given to Messiah. That you are my son and I will make you the sovereign Lord and King over all the nations of the earth. So you ask me and I will lay them before you. This is exclusively given to the Lord Jesus Christ 
and not to any person. And then it says here, what? It says here that you are my son today, I have begotten you. Does it create some tension in your mind when you read this? What does it create? Today means, my goodness, Jesus was created at a particular period of time. And it says here, begotten you. That means God gave birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, people can easily fool many Christians in the churches today. When they say that, hey, today, what is man today? Today means, you know, there was a time that Jesus was created by God the Father. It says begotten, begat. And many people have gone astray through the reasoning of this people. Now we need to understand here, and the Bible is a very clear evidence of this. When the scripture says here about today, it refers to Christ's exaltation after his resurrection. When Bible says today, which means the day when Christ rose from the dead, he has become and exalted. He was already the son, but the son was exalted after his resurrection. Now remember, son was not exalted on the cross. He was exalted after his resurrection. The scripture confirms this. This is not something I'm saying. You see this in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. Romans chapter 1. Verses 3 to 4, the scripture confirms that Christ was exalted as the Son of God after his resurrection. Look at here. Concerning the Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, was declared to be the Son of God. You see that? Concerning the Son, he was declared to be the Son of God. When? According to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Do you see here? Jesus was declared, which means he was exalted as the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We see that also in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. And this is even a more apt connection to what the scripture says about today I have begotten you. Acts chapter 13 verse 32, 33. It says here, but God raised him from the dead. He raised Christ from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to to the people. And we bring you the good news, what God promised to the fathers. Now observe this carefully here. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. It is speaking about how God has fulfilled his promise and exalted the son by raising Jesus As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So he's speaking about when Bible says today I have begotten you, today you have been my son. But today through your resurrection I am proving to the world that you are the son of God. And I am exalting you and above every other name and I am declaring to you in power. Before that, it was in title, in existence. But now, by your resurrection, I am declaring that you are the Son of God. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is an evidence that he is the Son of God. Now, here is an important word that I missed to tell you. Now, the basic word for begotten in Greek is monogenes. But here, in Hebrews, when it says that, 
Today I have begotten you, it means genau. Now this is a problem actually if you don't know the Greek word, where people just see the word, now we have English words, right? Similar in pronunciation or similar sometimes in word, but there is a heaven and earth difference. For example, bear, it could mean endure or it could also mean the animal bear. But bear is not always the same thing at all time. So when the author of Hebrews is saying here, begotten, and even if it is begotten, that is a very different meaning than what people understand. And it is used only four times in the entire New Testament, the word begotten, genau. You know, what does it mean? It simply means I brought you forth. So when the Bible says, today I have begotten you, what the scripture clearly tells is, today I have brought you forth from the grave. And I raised you from the dead after three days, declaring, showing to you, to the world, that you are the Son of God. How important it is for us to read the scripture properly, or else how grave misunderstanding we can fall into, like Jehovah's Witnesses. The scripture testifies that this is a meaning when it says, today I have begotten you, today I have brought you forth from the grave. And the second part he mentions over here, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5 is part B. He quotes two scriptures, right? The first one, he quotes Psalm 2. And the second one, he quotes the prophecy mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. Now here, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14 also is a very big tense scripture. I'll tell you why. Because it says here, to which of the angels did God ever say, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And we see here, the context is that, when Nathan came to David and he prophesied that you are not the one who builds the temple and your son will build the temple and I will exalt him and he will carry on your legacy. When people read that, they understood that it is speaking about Solomon later. But later people understood that that was not confined to Solomon but to somebody else. And I'll show you the scripture for that. But here is a clarification that I would like to give you. Now listen. Pay attention or else you will misunderstand. One of the, uh, you know, accusations can, people can make is that Jesus was fallible in his nature. That is, he was capable of sinning by pointing to the same verse, part B. Because it says that right after, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. The part B, that is Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, part B says, When he commits sin, I will discipline him. With the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Now what do people think when they read this? Jesus was fallible in his nature. That is, he was capable of committing sin. But that is the grave mistake that we commit when we read messianic prophecies. Now listen here. When you read messianic prophecies, one aspect of it is applicable to the Messiah, not its entirety. If you apply the entirety to the Messiah, you are committing a grave error of how to read and understand Messianic prophecies. Now, nowhere in the New Testament, part B, the same verse, part B is ever quoted alluding to the Messiah. Never. It's only the part A. Only that aspect is applicable to the Messiah. And there is a scripture support for that. And that too after a couple of centuries. You know, we see in Jeremiah chapter 33 verse 17. Jeremiah chapter 33 verse 17. It says here, For thus says the Lord, David shall never like a man to all 
to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. David shall never lack a man, which means David will always have his descendant on the throne and his legacy, his royal kingship will continue forever. What is it pointing to? It is pointing to the promise of 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 14. And now you see later, uh, now you see even before Jeremiah 33 in Jeremiah 23 verse 5. It says here, Behold the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Do you see here? It speaks about Messiah, I am raising up. And these prophecies are very important people for you to understand how powerful, trustworthy, miraculous the Bible is. Many people think, oh, it's very difficult for us to understand. But you need to get into this because this is in the Bible. And we need to comprehend this. It says that I will raise up David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And this prophecy was fulfilled only in the Messiah. Now you need to understand here, one of the titles that Jesus was called in the New Testament when he walked in flesh in the Gospels, what was the title? Very good. Son of David. Did you ever wonder why Jesus was called the son of David? We don't wonder, right? We have lost the sense of wonder. The wonder is because that is a fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 14. That is a fulfillment of Jeremiah chapter 33 verse 17. That is a fulfillment of Jeremiah chapter 23 verse 5. And for this reason, when Christ was ministering in the world in flesh, people were perplexed, baffled by who this man is. We see that, for example, in John chapter 7 verse 42, 43. John chapter 7 verse 42, 43. It says here, when they heard these words, that is when Christ spoke about uh, the living waters flowing from a man who believes in him. Some of the people said, this really is a prophet. Others said, this is a Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Now what is he pointing to here? Pointing to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and 14. That Christ should come from the lineage of David. My interesting thing is why did Christ did not jump over and say that, Hey, you made the point. You exactly said that, yes, Christ should come from Bethlehem. He should be the offspring of David. And that's I am. He didn't say that. He enjoyed the confusion. <laughs> he saw that bafflement. I don't... Understand why Christ hid himself so much when there was a great opportunity to reveal his glory. But the point here is that David was the son of God. And that's the reason it also says that in Matthew 12, 23, when Jesus was performing great miracles, people were amazed and said, what did they say? Can this be the son of David? Is he the one that Hebrews one chapter 5 we have seen about today I have begotten you, you shall be my son and then later I will be a father to him and you will be my son. And do you remember the blind man when all the disciples were ignoring him and the people and the crowd and this blind man was shouting what? David, son of David, uh, Lord son of David have mercy on me. Son of David have mercy on me. 
And you know what is the very baffling thing? He was indeed the son of David, humanly speaking. But Jesus one day gave a very good challenge to this Jewish people, the Pharisees, challenging them. I'm not just the son of David. In fact, I'm the Lord. I am God in flesh. You know, the evidence that we see that in Matthew 22, verse 41 to 46. And that is exactly what the Hebrews, also the author of Hebrews, also trying to prove. That David, that, that Christ is not merely human. He is above everything. He is God. And we see that in Matthew 22, verse 41 to 46. You look at here. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord saying, Psalm 1110 verse 1, Ajay gave a beautiful exposition yesterday morning. We all enjoyed that great exegesis. And it says here, the Lord said to my Lord. Now if you read that in Psalm, the first word Lord is in the capital L-O-R-D. And in the second it says, said to my Lord, which is, the first letter is L and then O-R-D, which means when it is completely capital L-O-R-D, it means it is referring to Yahweh. And then when it says L-O-R-D in small caps, it is referring to Adonai, which is one of the names of the Yahweh also. And it says here that David himself is telling, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? David himself is calling him Lord. How can he say it's just David's son, although it is true? But what Christ was telling is that I am not just David's son. I am the Lord of David too. And then what happened? It says here, and no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. How much he was filled with the knowledge and the wisdom of the Lord people. Amazing. Now we see the second factor here. That Christ is supreme over angels in name. The second thing it says here that the supremacy of Christ over angels in worship. Supremacy of Christ over angels in worship. We see in Hebrews 1.6. Shall we all read this together? And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world... He says that all God's angels worship him. Now what is the controversial word here? What is the meaning of firstborn? The one who is born first. So Jehovah Witnesses find some gullible Christians and say, Hey, it says firstborn. What does it mean? He was the first creation of the world. You guys are fools. You say that Christ is not created. Christ is the creator. But it says very clearly that he is the firstborn. He is the first creation. How many of you are able to refute that? You would ever say that, say whatever you can, I believe that he is God. <laughs> See whatever you want to say, I believe he is creator. My church said that, my pastor said that, the evangelical faith says that if I deny him, I will be a cult and I don't want to be. <laughs> but no reasoning. No reasoning at all. But... The Bible itself shows that firstborn does not necessarily mean birth order. It could also be supreme in position. I'll show you a couple of scriptures and it debunks what they say. Firstborn is not first in creation necessarily. It could mean also supreme. 
We see that in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 to 23. Exodus 4, 22 to 23. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my... Who is firstborn, Jesus or Israel? When you guys say that oh, firstborn means first in creation, then God says that Israel is my firstborn. And then I say to you, let my son go, my firstborn son go, my Israel go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. You know why firstborn? Because firstborn is the most important son in the ancient world. Very important. Even today also, right? They say what in Telugu? Jester? Putrudu. It's not just birth in, the, the birth in order. It also speaks about supreme. He's my firstborn. He's so dear. He's supreme. And that's exactly he's telling that. There is the literal and figurative here. He is supreme to me. And if you don't send my firstborn son, which you also cherish the firstborn literally in your family, I will kill them and destroy them. Jeremiah 31 verse 9. Jeremiah 31 verse 9. Again, the Lord says here, I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my? Now, who is firstborn here again? <laughs> now, you know, actually, if you see the birth order, who was born first to Joseph? Manasseh. Some people don't even know that Manasseh and Ephraim are the sons of Joseph. No worries. No problem. Today, you have come to know. But remember that. Manasseh was a firstborn. But here, the Lord says that Ephraim is my firstborn, which means supreme very dear to me. And let me show you another interesting one. Psalm 89 verse 27. Psalm 89 verse 27. This speaks about David. And I will make him what? Can anyone make the person firstborn if it is birth in order? No. It says here I will make him the firstborn. Now the explanation here speaks about what firstborn is. What does it mean? The highest supreme king of the earth. That's what it means firstborn. Not birth in order. That is the highest and supreme. So when the Bible says firstborn son about the Lord Jesus is speaking about his supremacy. Not about birth in order. But actually who was the son of uh, 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 Jesse? I think it's there already. And you are genius now. You can look at it and say that. Eliab, right? But David was the youngest. But the Lord says here, I will make him the firstborn. Finally, Romans chapter 8. I am telling you this verse because if you come across cults and all, you should be able to know and have the conviction that Jesus is God and he is the Lord and the sovereign king. You should not be baffled by their uh, distorted understanding of the scripture. Romans 8, 29. But whom... But those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What does it mean? That he might be supreme among many brothers. You know, Bible scholar Lightfoot, he mentions that the ancient rabbis called Yahweh the firstborn of the world. Which means he is supreme over the world. And now does it say here? What does it say here? It says here that and again when he, when he brings the firstborn into the world. Now what is the world here? It speaks about the inhabited. Now in the, the Greek language is very rich. You know there are various ways you can say what it means. So in the Greek when it says world it means literally where people inhabit. So it says here that when he brings the firstborn into the world 
scholars have divided what it means majority of the people believe that it speaks about when christ was incarnated when christ was born into the world and we see that in luke chapter 2 when christ was born the angels were worshiping the son so majority of the people believe that it is the first coming of the son but some of the bible scholar believe that it is speaking about the second coming when the second coming of the son comes into the world now this will take place whatever the thing is the main point is this this is the pivotal focus of the author and what does god say here let all god's angels worship him let all god's angels he is not something inferior in fact god commands angels here that you must worship the son to which of the angels did god ever say this angels worship other angels never it was only spoken of the son now scholars are divided here about he could be referring because there is no verbatim which means exact wordness that you need to worship the son in deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 43 and psalm 97 verse 7 so it is it is you know they 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 really struggle maybe he's quoting deuteronomy or psalm but the thing is it is there in the scripture but it is not clear which scripture it is but here is the interesting thing when you look at psalm 97 verse 7 and deuteronomy 32 verse 43 it is very clear precise that it was spoken about yahweh this is a great evidence of the deity of christ so what was spoken of yahweh that you need to worship this yahweh is applied to the son that jesus deserves worship and he is god and he is the sovereign lord we see that interesting thing in revelation chapter 22 verse 8 through 9 revelation chapter 22 verse 8 through 9 you know what happened when when the angel gave the revelation to john now this is what it says i john am the one who heard and saw these things and when i heard and saw them i fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me but he said to me the angel said to john you must not do that i am a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book and what is the instruction exhortation the angel gave to john worship god don't worship me why because i am not god who is worthy of worship only god now hear this carefully brothers and sisters god himself says here the father the yahweh himself says here to the angels worship the lord jesus christ Why would the father say that to the angels to worship the Lord Jesus if Jesus is not God that would be blasphemy to worship anyone other than God is what blasphemy and if God is telling angels to worship the son he is making them to commit a blasphemous sin but God will never cause any people to sin because God believes that Jesus is God that's the reason he commands the angels to worship him now here is the thing my dear brothers and sisters if angels are commanded to worship the lord jesus what about us do you think that we should worship him 
Don't you think that every day he deserves our worship? Every time that he deserves our worship in good times and bad times, be it in private or in the church, whether you're walking on the street, Christ deserves our worship. And those who love him, the, one of the most important devotion they express is the worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone was telling that indirectly that those who don't love worship the Lord, they show that the Christianity is a pretense. Because only superficial Christians get bored of worshiping Christ. True believers love worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. And the, finally, the factor that we see here is the supremacy of Christ over angels in sovereignty. Supremacy of Christ over angels in sovereignty. What is sovereign? It means he is great and high and the most high one. And he does whatever it pleases to him. No plans of his can be defeated. He does whatever it pleases. And he rules over all and no one can stand against him. He is so great, incomparable to any other creation. And it says here in verse 7, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 7. Of the angels, he says, again he compares angels with the Lord Jesus, citing Psalm 104 verse 4. He makes angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. What does it mean? The wind and the fire represents powerful natural agencies, right? In other words, he's telling that angels are servants. Now listen here. Servant is used here not in terms of demeaning servanthood. It only used here in comparison to Christ that Christ is superior to angels. Not that serving, being a servant is something demeaning. And then he says over here that angels are powerful servants. And then he says in comparison to Christ in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8 to 9. But of the son it says. Now he quotes Psalm 45 verse 6 to 7. And what does it say? Now hear and pay attention to every word that is used over here. How great and majestic this Lord Jesus is. Your throne O God. Here God is telling the son what? Here God is calling the son what? God. Here God the father says that your throne, your rule. Now you need to understand when it speaks about throne, it means rule. Your authority, O Lord, God, is forever and ever. What the Father is saying about the Son is, Son, God you are, and your sovereign rule is forever and ever. And then it says, the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. What is a scepter? It is a decorated rod that the kings will hold. You know, the, if you see the movies or the olden times, you see the kings holding the rod, the, the stick, the decorated one. And what does it speak about? It speaks about authority. And it says here that you rule the kingdom with righteousness. You rule the nations with uprightness. Wow. How much we need to crave for this kingdom people. Why? Because we are living in a corrupted world. The political leaders are corrupted. The laws are corrupted. The reign is corrupted. We are living in a corrupted world. Sometimes I tell my wife, I wish I would flee from India and flee to another country. Because I hate corruption here. So much of them. But the time is coming. The kingdom of heaven is coming. When Christ will rule his kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. With the scepter of righteousness where there is no sin and corruption. And it says here, you know what? You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. This speaks about the holiness of Christ. That God doesn't compromise with sin. 
He loves sinners, but he hates sin. And he doesn't compromise with sin. He hates sin with perfect hatred. And he loves truth and righteousness with perfect love. And when this is what Christ is, when disciples love sin, and when disciples hate righteousness, that is very questionable. If this is the holiness of the Lord that he loves, when I read this for the first time, I said, Lord, I want this hunger in me. I want this thirst in me. I want this hatred in me towards sin. Because rarely we find today people hating sin. They hate people. People hate people. But Bible doesn't call us to hate people. It calls us to hate sin. And that is what we need to become. And then it says over here, therefore, because of this, because you rule over the kingdom with uprightness, you love righteousness and the wickedness, it speaks about the heart of God. You know what does it say? Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, what is the oil of gladness? It speaks about the incomparable joy that the Father had in the Son. People listen, nothing pleases God like hatred toward wickedness and love towards righteousness. That brings the pleasure to the heart of God. Even when you raise up your hand and say, Lord, I praise you. Oh, I stand in the gospel of Christ. Jesus is all the world to me. Nothing of this pleases God if in your heart we don't hate sin and don't love righteousness. And that's the reason God says a beautiful word that he says when Jesus was baptized. What did he say? This is my son with whom I am. What did he do? He did not even begin the ministry at the time. He said that with whom I am well placed. Because he loves righteousness. He loves righteousness. And then it says in verse 10 to 12. As we are coming to an end. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 10 to 12. It says again citing another psalm. Psalm 102 verse 25 to 27. Now people this is one of the powerful scriptures that no one can argue against the deity, divinity, and the supreme, glorious sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you turn to Psalm 102, this psalm was offered to Yahweh. This psalm was offered to Yahweh. And here it says that, and the father is saying here, using David here, he says that, pointing to Messiah, you Lord, in Hebrew it is addressed to Yahweh. And now this title is given to Jesus. That's the reason not all the time Yahweh is applied to the Father. Sometimes Yahweh was even applied to the Lord Jesus. Jesus was also the Yahweh of the Old Testament. And it is a great evidence here. You Lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe you will roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed. But you are the same and your ears will have no end. What is he speaking about? He is speaking about the eternality of the sun and the transitory of the creation. The momentariness of the creation. The creation is going to perish. The creation is going to wipe away. The flower fades. The grass withers. The people return to the dust. But the glorious king of the heavens and the earth, he remains forever and ever. That is the glory and the majesty of the Lord Jesus that is eternal compared to the creation. It is in this context, many people have abused Hebrews 13 verse 8. 
And what is the famous phrase that we see in the houses? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What does it mean? He rose the dead in the first century. Today also he is the same. He can still raise the dead. And tomorrow also? So all the miracles that Jesus did in the first century, he will also do it today. Name it. Claim it. The author of Hebrews had no intention of citing to the miracles of Christ. He is speaking in the context of his immutable character. His ever existence as the eternal Lord. He is the same. See, see the word here. He says, but you are the same. And your years will have no end. And then Hebrews 13, 18, Jesus Christ is the same. That is, he exists forever and ever. You can trust him. You can rely on him. And his character never changes. It has nothing to do with the works. And then he comes, verse 13, Hebrews 1, 13. The seventh scripture, the last scripture of the seven citations of the Old Testament. And to which of the angels has he ever said? Again, rhetorical question. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Ajay was preaching this from uh, Psalm 110 yesterday and he was mentioning that this is the most directly alluded, indirectly quoted Old Testament scripture in the entire New Testament. And he said that it is used about 24 times in the New Testament. <gasps> 24 times. Psalm 1110 verse 1. And it says here that he will become sovereign ruler destroying the enemies. Sit at my right hand, which is the authority, position of authority and power. And I will make your enemies a footstool. That means you will trample over my enemies. Exactly. Same thing it says in Hebrews 10, 12 to 13 verses. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. It is still happening now. It is still happening. It is not completed. This promise will be completed at the return of Christ. Where, as Philippian students says that what? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord. Now who are these enemies? We have, not, we have no doubt about people who are uh, the persons who are the demons and the devil. The first thing it speaks about, the time is coming when Christ will trample. He already trampled on the cross. He is defeated enemy. But the time will come that Satan and all his minions, demons will be thrown into the abyss of eternal fire where they will be burning forever and ever. And then it also applies to the death. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 to 26 says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under feet. Pointing to Psalm 110 verse 1. The last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death. He will destroy the power, the wages of sin, which is death. Condemning, condemning people, sending people to eternal fire. And that will be destroyed. But listen here. The other thing, enemies are those who people who rejected Christ. They're all the enemies of Christ. And one day, Christ will trample all the devil, the demons, the deaths, 
and all those who rejected Christ. And I'm telling you here, if anyone is here who is rejecting Christ, you are Christ's enemy. And if you keep rejecting Christ, one day your destiny will be horrible and terrible. So better repent of your sins now and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ so that you would become a child of God and not live as an enemy of God. God did make away salvation for us. If you re- that is the whole cry of the book of Hebrews. He was crying that Christ made a way for your salvation. If you reject him, there is no hope for you. That is a cry throughout the book. Finally, finally in verse 14, he says here, all must be breathing. <sighs> finally, if you are so tired of listening, how much should I be tired of preparing this? I was plowing my mind to get to this text. But I'm the most benefited person. Why? Because I fell in love with the book of Hebrews. My mind is soaked in every word and I am filled with the word of God. And I'm so glad for that. I'm absolutely benefited. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14. It says here, And they are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Shall we read these final words once again? Are angels not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Now he is comparing with the son, saying that the son is a source of salvation, the ruler of creation. But when you compare to the angels, how can you compare the son to the angels? Because the angels are serving the same. They are servants to you and me. Can you believe people? They are Serving those who inherit salvation. In angelology, this is a very, very important verse. When you study about the nature of angels, that angels are not physical beings. They are spirit beings. They did appear in the physical form. Appeared like human beings. But that's not the nature. Because the scripture says here that they are the ministering spirits. They are the spirits. And they are the servants of those who inherit salvation. Who are those who inherit salvation? Again, who are those who inherit salvation? They are the ones who genuinely repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and evidence in their works. Now people listen to this. Just vain profession, I believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus. Is not that you are born again. That's not. Even a Hindu says I believe in Christ. A Muslim says I believe in Christ. So many people infiltrated today in the churches in the mainline or the nominal or churches like this say that I believe in Christ. The most easiest thing to say in the world today, I believe in Jesus. But you know what is the most difficult thing? To bear the fruit of salvation. Which is the fruit which evidence that you are truly saved. That Second Peter chapter 1 verse 3 to 5 says that. What is that? Steadfastness, godliness, knowledge, virtue, brotherly affection and love. And, and care for others and forgiving others and, and pursuing the virtues of Christ. That shows that you are truly a born again Christian. And I tell you to some of you here. If you are only a namesake Christian. It is the evil spirits who are serving all the unbelievers and the superficial Christians. The angels serve only the truly saved ones of the living God. And I tell you, my dear brothers and sisters, have angels as your servants to serve you and protect you 
And don't let evil spirits destroy your life. You know, I remember reading about John Payton, who was born in 1824 and died in 1906. He was a missionary to New Hebrides. And this couple, as they were serving the Lord, among the cannibals, cannibals are those who eat and drink the blood of human beings and eat the flesh of human beings. What a great place to go as a missionary. And they went there and serving the Lord. And one day the savages, the cannibals came to kill them and there was noise outside of their house. And this couple were so scared that if they come out of the house, they will be brutally killed and eaten by these cannibals. And as they were living in that fear and thunder, they fell on their knees and they were crying out to God, Lord, have mercy on me, on us and save us. And then as they were crying and crying and the noises were so loud outside of the house, as the sun was rising in the morning, the noise of the savages subsided. And they were amazed. Wow, praise God. God has saved us by his grace and mercy. And then after a while, the interesting thing is that the chieftain, the chief of the tribe has come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then this John Payton reminded of uh, the attack that happened one night uh, some time ago. And he asked uh, this question, hey, do you remember that one day, one night you guys came to kill us? And we were so afraid. What happened? Why didn't you kill us? And the chieftain said to John Payton, who were those men in your house? And John Payton said that, what are you talking? There were no men around us. None except me and my wife. What are you talking about? He said, no, we have seen giant men, hundreds of men surrounding your house, clothed in shining garments with their drawn swords, protecting you guys. Who were they? And he said that, I don't know who were they. And we believe that they were angels. Of God. Many times we don't know how many times those angels might have protected us from the wicked men. We don't know how many times those angels have protected us from accidents. How many times they have guarded us. We have no idea. But here is a caution that I would like to tell you people. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly how angels are engaged in spiritual warfare to protect us. The Bible doesn't give us a detail. But it gives us the confidence that angels are ministering spirits. And we have to trust in the Lord and that he will use his angels to protect us. That doesn't mean that every time good things will happen to you. The same angel was sent to protect Peter when he was in prison. But God did not send the angel when James was beheaded. Where was the angel when James was beheaded in the book of Acts? He let James be beheaded and let Peter be delivered. It is a sovereignty. It is not a pattern every time it happens. We don't know exactly how it happens. But we believe the Bible that says that angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve us. And we can only have that confidence. But be careful of some people who say that every believer is having a personal guardian angel. The theology, the doctrine that has come out. No, we don't know. No way the scripture says that everyone. Now I'm here and uh, if you listen to some kind of uh, this uh, motivational hyped preachers, they'll say, do you see that? There is a right side angel here. The left side angel here. You don't want to see that. But that's what the Bible says that. We have been given angels to protect us. That's, we should not go to that extreme. It doesn't talk anything about personal guardian given to every believer. Don't believe that. But we know that. Yes, angels are there to serve us. Now listen carefully here. It is very important. Angels are not the focus of Christian life. Christ is. 
Because a lot of people have gone up into all these visions and dreams and angels and elementary principles and all these territorial spirits and they get so much engaged. The Bible forbids us and we should be careful of that. Our focus is in Christ. And here is a great warning that I give you. Never ever engage in communication or praying or calling upon angels. Nowhere people pray to angels. Nowhere people give great importance to angels. They just did what was accomplished. Now don't take this and think that, oh angel, I, where are you? I heard that. You are with me, protecting us. Oh, I'm in danger. Angel, come, come, come. Don't do all those nasty things. Call upon God. Don't call upon angels. Angels will run away from you if you pray to angels. Call upon God and he will send angels to protect you. Now this is my summary. The final summary is this. Christ is superior to angels because he has a superior name. He is son. Christ is superior to angels because he has a superior honor. All the angels worship him. Christ is superior to angels because he has a supreme vocation. That he is sovereign king. He is eternal and unchangeable. He rules the universe. Let's all stand and pray. How great thou art, Lord Jesus. Even if no man would come for your testimony, we see here the Father himself has come to testify who you are. That you are the heir. That you are the creator. That you have been exalted over all the nations of the earth. You are the king of the universe. Before you all the angels worship you. And when such glorious angels worship you, what a great privilege it is for us to worship you. Because you deserve it. Lord, we pray that you make us worshipers of you. We don't want to just think and learn about your supremacy. The greatest result of knowing the supremacy of Christ is worship. And if we truly understand who you are, we would fall at your feet and worship you. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for revealing your glory in the scripture, for revealing your majesty in chapter 1, showing how you have laid the foundations of the earth. Everything perishes, but you remain the same forever. Jesus, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are the one who is God in flesh. Fully God, fully man, seated at the right hand of the Father now and interceding for us and praying for us and ruling over us. We thank you and praise you for your majesty. Help us to meditate on you every day because you have made us and you laid everything and you are the one who owes our lives and we belong to you. We have no authority over our lives, oh Lord Jesus, except you. You are the only authority of our lives and you rule over us. You are the sovereign king. And we pray that you continue to speak to us. Show us the scripture. Help us to read the Bible diligently, O Lord. May we not neglect your word. May we not neglect even the hard passages of the Bible thinking they are too difficult. Help us to study diligently. Difficult texts should be studied with labor, O Lord, that we may understand your will for us and live according to your will and for your pleasure. Oh, we thank you for the wisdom you have revealed. We thank you and we declare today that you are supreme over the prophets. 
You are the supreme over the angels. You are supreme over all the creation. Oh Lord, we bow down before you and we give you all glory, honor and praise. We may perish one day, but you remain forever and ever. For you are the eternal Lord. You are the glorious one. You are the sovereign king. And you are seated on the throne. And you rule with your scepter of righteousness and uprightness. And we are your servants. And you are our sovereign king. And you reign forever and ever. Lord, I pray this time for the enemies here. Enemies of the gospel. Enemies who will become your footstool if they don't repent of their sins and trust in you now. Because you love them and gave your life for them and you rose from the dead. Pray, Lord, there is, let them understand that there is no other way besides Jesus. That if there is no Jesus, there is only condemnation, only eternal fire and only be trampled under your footstool. Oh, I pray that they would not face that grave, dangerous destiny. Pray for their salvation. Pray that they would turn to you and believe in you and evidence their salvation and the fruit of their Christian life. Pray that you please to uphold them, O oh Lord. And pray for all of us who have believed in you. Help us to rejoice in you. Keep nourishing, keep cherishing the doctrine of Christ, the person of Christ, the work of Christ. And may we love you more than anyone. May we obey you more than anything. May we submit to you. May we not rebel against you, but bow down before you and submit to whatever you say to us. Because you are our king and ruler and lord. And we are your children, your servants and your subjects. We pray that your will be done. And continue to build your church. In your name, O Lord Jesus, we offer this prayer. Amen. Thank you for listening to the message. We believe you have been greatly encouraged in your heart. Stephen David also writes articles that are relevant to today's generation. You may read them on his blog, www.messageforourage.blogspot.com I repeat, www.messageforourage.blogspot.com You may also email him at cstephendavid at gmail.com I repeat c-s-t-e-p-h-e-n-d-a-v-i-d at g-m-a-i-l dot c-o-m Grace and peace be to you.